TV that you knows is going to look fantastic, mate. Uh, I want to thank whoever brought back um, sermon outlines to our practice. I love taking notes in the sermon. If you're like me and you haven't got an outline, there's a pile of these up the back. Uh, feel free to grab one to help you take notes. Uh, otherwise, make sure you keep that part of the Bible open. We're going to be working through uh, Revelation 7, those verses, and right up to uh, verse 17. This is the last week in our thankfulness series. Um, and... Look, I'm apologise. I'm, I'm still in warden mode a little bit. Um, I didn't get to put up any graphs in my warnings report, so just let me get this out of my system, okay? <laughs> We've had lots of numbers in our thankfulness series, um, and I've put them in here to, to remind us what we've seen so far. We've seen that thankfulness is more about our relationship with God than our relationship with others. We, people thank God 159 times in the Bible, but only two times thanking other people. We also saw that the source of our thankfulness is the gift of grace in Jesus. Mike showed us that because of this grace, God's people are joyful, which is a richer experience than being happy. Uh, happiness is mentioned 10 times, joy 430 times. Uh, and rejoicing and depending on God in prayer with thanksgiving is a sure way of dealing with worry. Ron was 12 years old when he went for a swim. <laughs> and thankfully he survived so that he could come and show us how the Psalms model thankfulness in all circumstances. In Ephesians 1, uh, a single sentence of 199 words, uh, we heard that grace has been give, given us common ground with other believers, and this uh, moves us to thank God and to seek their growth in Christ. And finally, the King of Siam had 106 children in the King of Nepal. <laughs> Lots of numbers which uh, uh, kept me engaged, I don't know about the rest of you. <laughs> um, but I have one more number for you today, one more number I'd like you to consider, and that number is infinity. Did you notice in verse 12, uh, well actually this, in this passage altogether, uh, that this passage is a view of heaven, this is a view of our experience for eternity. And did you notice in verse 12, the sevenfold praise to God is sung out by the angelic host, it says blessing and honor and glory, uh, sorry, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Did you notice the thanksgiving in the middle there? It's kind of easy to skip over it. But it's interesting to think about this if you think about what, how we're going to relate to God in heaven. We're not going to relate to Him with faith, we're not going to relate to Him with hope but we'll always relate to him with thanksgiving. According to this passage, and according to the angelic host here, we're going to be thankful for eternity. That's quite the notion to wrap your head around, isn't it? So today we're going to explore just some of the reasons why we're going to be thankful in eternity. Uh, let me pray as we prepare to do this. Uh, loving and amazing Lord, we thank you that we can gather under your word. Uh, we thank you that we'll be thankful for eternity. May we open your word and help you to speak faithfully so that we can see why we'll be thankful. May this engender a hope in us that uh, helps us persevere to the end. May your Holy Spirit be with us all to grow us and develop us into the people you would have us be in eternity. Amen. Friends, there are no ends of studies and self-help articles um, that 
talk about thankfulness and how good cultivating an attitude of thankfulness is for you. They show how thankfulness helps your mood, helps your relationships, it even helps your skin apparently. But these articles don't tell us who to be thankful to. They just tell you to be thankful. And I find it interesting that even the vain and narcissistic uh, writing these articles recognise that thankfulness is so good for us. We, of course, can recognise how this is how God designed us. Thankfulness pulls us out of resentment. It calms us when we're anxious. It grounds us in our relationship with God who gives us all good things. And our passage today shows us that thankfulness is not simply a, a crutch for, to get through this world. God has designed us to thrive as thankful children in the next world as well. But this is a topic we don't give enough thought to. If, I think our problem is that pop culture has kind of ruined our view of heaven. A lot of the things that we think about heaven uh, don't really lead us to thanks. Maybe you think of heaven as a disembodied kind of spiritual state where you know, dressed in robes, sitting on clouds, playing harps. Um, I don't know, that doesn't sound very exciting to me. That kind of sounds like a school assembly. Um, but thankfully, the truth is much, much bigger and much more real and much more physical and yet much more transformed and glorious than we can possibly imagine. There are verses that say whatever you can imagine about the plans of God, the truth is so much bigger which I personally take as a bit of a challenge. Uh, I want us to imagine B. We're commanded to think about this. Here's another number for you. 5%. 5% of the verses in the New Testament are pointing your eyes beyond this world. They talk about the hope we have beyond this world. Thinking about our hope is critically important. Paul says that it's the key to persevering well um, and making it to the end of the race. We're supposed to want heaven, to yearn for it, to be thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus about where we're going. So today we're going to make a start on that. We're going to start with just three reasons why we'll be thankful in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we're in the book of Revelation, as we said, and in Revelation, the Apostle John is a prisoner of, on the uh, island of Patmos, and he has a vision of God's final plans for this world. Revelation, of course, is a book that, that many people obsess over, trying to interpret numbers and symbology uh, to trying to predict the end of the world. But that's not why John shared his vision. John wrote down and sent his vision to the other churches to give certainty, not about dates, but about the future of God's people beyond this world. In chapter 7, we're at a point in John's vision where he's just seen the wrath of God poured out over a sinful world. Death and war have been let loose. Earthquakes destroy kingdoms. Stars fall from the sky. Everyone, from kings to paupers, are running into caves, praying that the rocks would crush them, anything to avoid facing the judgment and wrath of the Lamb of God. But right in the middle of this judgment, judgment and wrath, we come into chapter 7, and John sees the servants of God being sealed and protected he looks out over those being sheltered from this judgment and he describes what he sees in verse 9. After this I looked, he says, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Just as God promised Abraham in Genesis 13, God's people are uncountable as the grains of sand in the ocean. They've come from every nation on earth. They're not all Israeli. They're not all white. They're not all middle class. They've come from every nation. They speak every language. And they all stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb, that is Jesus, God's perfect sacrifice for sin. They wave palm branches because this is how people in the ancient Near East rejoiced after a great victory. This is how they they welcome home those who have been victorious in battle. They're clothed in white because it symbolises their purity. They're absolutely clean. They're without blemish or stain. John must have looked a little bit confused because one of the elders who was sitting behind the throne comes over and explains who these people are. Have a look at um, verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And that's a phrase like, uh, I wish I knew. Or won't you tell me? So he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The great tribulation is the judgment that will fall upon creation at the end of history where John saw mankind running into caves and begging for death rather than than face judgment. But this multitude, this great mass of people, they're not running. No, they stand joyfully before the judgment seat and they cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they can do this because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are pure They are clean. Their sins do not stain them. Their deeds are not on display because of the blood of the Lamb that has washed all of that away. They stand without shame. This is such a great image. This is a return to Genesis 1 and 2 where Adam and Eve walked about without shame. Before they sinned and ran and hid from the Lord, these people are not hiding because they are without shame. Now it's not like these people are imposters, like they're muddy and filthy people pretending to be good by putting on some some clean clothes over the top. They are actually clean. And it's not like they have no reason to be ashamed. They remember their sin. They don't have some kind of heavenly amnesia. If that was the case, then they couldn't praise God and thank Him for their salvation. No, they know how much they sin. They know how filthy they should be. They know they don't belong. Uh, and yet they find themselves righteous and standing without shame before God. This is a really hard concept to imagine because we've never lived without shame. As we go about our days and we go to work or we come to church, we hide our shame as naturally as we get dressed in the morning to hide our nakedness. The airs we put on, the lies we tell, the care we take to make sure that no one sees us for what we we really are. We don't even realise we're doing it. Most days we're so good at this we don't even acknowledge our shame. Not until something 
threatens to expose us, to show us for what we are, then we know the shame is there. I'm wearing clean clothes today, but I would not stand before you naked. I'm standing at the front of a church preaching God's word. I know I'm a hypocrite. And yet this passage tells me that even if I die in this moment, I will stand before God fully exposed and yet without shame. Because I've been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And it's also true for you if you hope and trust in Jesus. Jesus took our sins upon himself and gave us his righteousness and has promised to deliver us clean and without blemish on that last day. And though I think this is just symbolic, I would have no problem standing next to you, waving palm branches together and shouting, Look at us! Proof that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If that's not something to give thanks to God for, I don't know what is. But, as TV used to say, but wait, there's more. There's the whole new creation. A new heavens and a new earth. Now this is the stuff we really want to think about, isn't it? This is the stuff we want to know about. This is the stuff we have questions about. Is it going to be singing 24-7? Or do we have work to do? Will there be pizza? Do we still need haircuts? What's going to happen there? The Bible doesn't give us answers to all these detailed questions. It's not the, the lonely planet guide to heaven with all the best bars and things to do laid out for us. But it does make some things very clear. It actually has a great deal to say about what heaven will be like in our experience and in its physicality. It shows a physical creation where the curse of sin is removed. That's what it wants us to think about, how the curse of sin can be removed. Just as the curse and shame of sin has been removed from God's people, so the curse of sin will be removed from God's creation. Again, it's a return to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, before it's ruined by sin in Genesis 3. It will be a creation of which God can say, it is good. Now that doesn't necessarily mean heaven will literally be a garden. Like most language concerning heaven, it is symbolic. A garden represents paradise without the curse of sin. In fact, in the Bible, the same word is used for paradise and garden. So the language used to describe heaven is more symbolic than descriptive, but it does paint a picture of living without the curse of sin. Let's take, for example, verse 16 in Revelation 7 there, uh, where the elder is describing to John the experience of God's chosen people. In verse 16 he says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the, lamb of, uh, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see the, the idea carried in that? Nature is no longer fighting us, but yields its food as it should. There's a picture here of green fields and fresh, life-giving waters. Comfort without pain or conflict. Maybe, maybe Psalm 23 comes to mind as you think about this. And it should. Because these verses, what the, what the elders saying, is, are like song lyrics. Uh, 
we were at um, Izzy and Ryan's wedding during the week and Rod gave a great uh, speech as the father of the bride. Uh, being a musician, of course, he dropped a lot of song lyrics into it. Okay, and I was thinking about this as he was speaking. Uh, he used a lot of song lyrics to convey an idea, to convey a feeling or a tone. If you listen to the speech literally, it would make almost no sense. But if you know the songs, then you, when he said these lyrics, it carried with it all the meaning and tone of, so, uh, uh, of the song. It brought to mind a lot more depth. Now, of course, if you didn't know the song, well, it makes less sense. Um, and I think that's why we struggle with passages like this. We don't know the songs that are being referenced here. But this is how, this is how Revelation is written. This is how you have to, to dig into it. It's apocalyptic literature. It's full of symbology and it's full of quotes. Uh, not from old songs as such, but from old promises and old prophecies. Promises that the Israelites in the early church knew very well indeed. Because they were very, very precious to them. Uh, I'm going to teach you a couple of the songs. These are just two short examples from Isaiah. Um, I've had to shorten them uh, because these are very long songs, but I really recommend you spend some time uh, in these chapters during the week. Uh, the first is Isaiah 49. Uh, and that says, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favour I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. They shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. By, and by springs of water, uh, sorry, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, our, uh, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Uh, and Isaiah 25, God says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich uh, feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So it's not just no hunger. You know, eat well. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, that is their shame, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There are so many other examples with exactly the same allusions. But you see how these two verses in Revelation would bring to mind these old promises from Isaiah. And it's, uh, the, So the elder describing the experience of heaven is not giving new information here. He's calling to mind all those redemptive promises of God. All those promises that were so precious to the early church. And the point he is making is this. God's promises are now the experience of his people. That's the point he's trying to get across. He's not trying to tell them about you know, no hunger and no thirst. He's saying those promises you are hanging on, they're now your experience. And I'm being careful to say that experience rather than fulfilled. We need to make a distinction between the fulfilment of God's promises and the experience. Uh, because the Bible tells us, of course, that God's promises were fulfilled by Jesus. Maybe you recognise some of those song lyrics in some of the things Jesus said. Here's a few um, 
short examples. Uh, in John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or from chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or John 4, where he's talking to the um, uh, lady at the well. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, this isn't just coincidence. Jesus knew these old songs as well. And he said these things to show the people at the time and to show us how he came to fulfill the redemptive promises of God. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. In his birth, life, death, and uh, resurrection, ascension, Jesus has made the redemption of creation possible and certain. The work is done. The outcome is now so certain that we can say the promise has been fulfilled. But of course, it's not our experience yet. That's why these verses in Revelation 7 are so encouraging. It shows that we will experience the redeemed creation God promised and Jesus guaranteed. All the promises that God's people have been holding on to for thousands and thousands of years. All the prayers of God's people asking God to deal with hunger and sickness and suffering and injustice. They will not only be fulfilled, but the full yes of those promises will be experienced by God's people. That's certainly something to be thankful for. Even as we have the joy of finding out all the other details for ourselves. That's plenty to hope for. The Apostle Paul probably had a clearer view of this than, than any of us. Uh, and he wrote to the Romans, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation, all of creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's what's on, on offer there. That's what we hope for. Right, so that brings us to uh, the final reason We'll have to be thankful in heaven. Well, not the final reason. The Bible talks about plenty of other reasons why we'll be thankful. But this is the final reason I'll talk about today. Uh, and it's found in verse 15, Revelation 7, verse 15, which says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Friends, we're going to be thankful because of who we'll be with. God's people will stand before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Now this doesn't mean a lot to us today. We don't have a temple. Uh, but like the, to, the, to the Jewish early church, this is really, really stunning. You see, they didn't really think about God being everywhere and in all things like we tend to think about it today. God was separate, separate from this world. There was only one place where this world and God came together and that was in the temple. But not the whole temple. Okay, there was an outer part where if you were Jewish you were allowed to enter there. There was an inner part where only the priests serving God could enter. And then at the centre of this inner part was the Holy of Holies. A perfect cube, about 10 metres on each side. Uh, and only the high priest could enter there. And even then only once a year. And only if he brought the blood of a sacrifice. And only if he covered himself and hid himself behind incense smoke and the word translated as temple here in verse 15 is a technical term it meant the inner part of the temple 
uh, where the priest serves. So what the elder is saying to John, what the elder is pointing out, is that this multitude stands before God as priests. This is the experience they spoke of uh, that God promised in Exodus when he said, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 1 Peter picks up this theme when he talks to the, the saints in Jesus. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now we saw earlier how God's promises spoke of the redeemed creation, but maybe you picked up on another theme in some of those songs. It's a really major theme in all of God's redemptive promises. God will dwell with his people. And the symbology in Revelation it really plays to this tune. God will dwell with his people. We see a hint of it here, talking about the priesthood having access to God. But take Revelation 21. Now Jesus, uh, John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. This glorious city which will be the home uh, to all God's people. This represents the new creation. It has walls of jasper and streets of gold and, and jewels adorn the foundations and the gates are made of pearls. Wonderful imagery. And it's all pregnant with its own meaning. Uh, and people love debating about all of that. But the best part is this city is described as a perfect cube. A completely impractical shape for a city, but a shape only mentioned one other place in the Bible, describing the holy of holies. The new creation is the holy of holies. Our new earth will not have a small room in the middle of the temple where, where God's only accessible once a year. The entire world will be God's dwelling place. Of course it will be glorious. Of course it will be marvellous. But the best part is, it will be a garden where we can stroll with the Lord in the cool of the day. Imagine that. The beach will be the Holy of Holies. When you go bush, you're in the Holy of Holies. Anywhere you go, you will be with the ever-present Lord. This is what God promised in Leviticus, in Jeremiah, and in Ezekiel, and plenty of other places. But I have one example for you from Ezekiel 37, where he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them uh, in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary, another name for the Holy of Holies, in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You live in Australia. But you don't have access to the Prime Minister whenever you want to go talk foreign policy or, or men's fashion. You're part of the Anglican Church. And as open and as humble as we are, and as nice as the Archbishop is, uh, I'm pretty sure you need a meeting to go see him. And he might not appreciate it if you just go and talk to him about the weather. But this is how we operate in this world. But in the next, we will have full access to the Creator of the Universe. We will be to him like a son or daughter. He will delight in us and we in him. Friends, how often, how often, I wonder, do you pray for more of God's presence in your life? How long do you want that feeling of his love with you again? Just, just an inkling, just an inspiration, a flicker of that heat of his cosmic warmth to see you through another day. 
Again, John is seeing a time when these prayers are answered more fully than we could ever hope for. Because we'll be present with God. We'll be able to thank him in person. Imagine that, standing before Almighty God and thanking him face to face for our salvation, for the restoration and redemption of creation, and for his his very presence with you. There's lots of stuff I want to know about heaven, but just that right there is plenty to be thankful for. And of course, while we wait for this experience, we can be thankful now for this hope that we have in Jesus. I'm going to thank God now on behalf of us all, but before I do that, uh, the book of Revelation ends with these words. He who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Almighty God, what you have planned for us for an eternity is so far beyond us. It's so far beyond our experience that our language fails to capture it. Uh, But let that not put us off. Don't let it stop us from imagining what you have in store for us. Let us dwell in your word, dig through the very precious promises of God and imagine why we'll be thankful in heaven. Lord, may that hope that we have in Jesus sustain us and help us to persevere on this long and certain earthly pilgrimage until we can be home with you. Amen. Friends, we're going to short share in, uh, in communion in just a moment, uh, where you'll be asked to feed on Jesus in your heart by faith and to be thankful. So why not uh, spend just a short time now, just a minute or two, dwelling in eternity. Just imagine what that will be like to be there. Be present with God. Give your thanks to God. After all, this will be the business of heaven. We may as well start now. <laughs>